stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. On November 9th, 1913, a deckhand showed up to work on the Carruthers, a 529-foot industrial ship that could haul up to 375,000 bushels of wheat. It was a cold morning with winds gusting up to 36 miles per hour. There were storm warnings projected for the afternoon by the Weather Bureau, as there had been for the two days prior. He was given two choices, get on the ship or find a new job. He chose the first. He was working on the Carruthers and was used to the turbulence that came with being out on the open lake. But this was different. The 36 mile per hour gales brought on a constant crashing of oversized waves, turning the ship into an unescapable tomb of seasickness. It was cold, windy, and the snow was coming down in a blizzard. Given the size of the ship and the experience of the captain, this wasn't cause for too much concern. But the wind wasn't slowing down. It was only getting stronger. By 9 o'clock that night, the gales had grown to a speed of 62 miles per hour, and the size of the waves had doubled along with it. The snow had grown so heavy it was a complete whiteout, and if that hadn't ruined the visibility enough, the water that had frozen onto the windows had. Going on the deck at this point was a dead man's wish, and everything that had been on it before was now at the bottom of the lake. The chances of survival were near 50-50. Some ship workers even started writing messages to their loved ones at home, sealing them in glass bottles and throwing them into the lake. Around 3 in the morning on November 10th, the storm reached its peak. Winds were now at 80 miles per hour and the deckhand was in the cabin, ankle deep in icy water that had broken through the windows. He looked out to see if there was an end in sight, but there wasn't anything at all. All he saw was the dark hue of the final tidal wave that came crashing into the Crothers. It rolled the boat over and hammered it down to the lake. There were no survivors. The Crothers wasn't the only boat to go down that day. It was one of the many that fell victim to the biggest storm in the Great Lakes history. This story wasn't based on any individual account, but something like it could have happened to dozens of people that day. The Great Storm of 1913 was one of the biggest in Canadian history. This week on the 509 podcast, The White Hurricane, The Great Lakes Storm of 1913. So it's November the 9th. Captains are anxious to get one more run in, get paid. The sailors themselves are anxious to get one more in and one more pay. And so often what would happen is that when uh, whether things happen, they would just simply hang their coat over the barometer, just kind of ignore it. Some of the captains had this sort of, should we go, shouldn't we go? And, you know, we've all been in that position ourselves, even driving in a snowstorm and it's west, southwest Ontario. Should we go? Should we not go? Sometimes you make the decision to go and it's the wrong one. And I think that lull in between what had happened up north and what finally happened on Lake Huron lulled them into a sense of safety. That was Colleen McGuire, a local expert on the history of the Great Storm of 1913. There had been weather warnings prior to the departure of the ships that year, but in this time, the Weather Bureau forecasts weren't taken with absolute certainty. They were wrong as many times as they were right. But November's were usually the months to pay attention to these types of storm warnings. This is David Phillips, a senior climatologist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. November is always a tricky month of the Great Lakes. Um, it's usually the busiest, most deaths occur in November than any other time of the of the year. A couple of reasons for that, weather-wise, but also uh, from a shipping point of view. I mean, ships, uh, ship and companies want to get their goods delivered, pick up and delivered, and before the the Great Lakes closed down because of ice conditions. And so November was a busy month, but also it tends to be a stormy month. Uh, and really, when you get warm air duking it up with cold air, hey, that's when you get wild weather. And that's, of course, is what we often see in November. You get some Canadian cold air and then some American warm air, and the battleground is often over the Great Lakes. And this is why you'll get storms that can be almost hurricane strength. 
and come up very quickly. As hard as the weather was to forecast, there really wasn't a way to get timely information to these boats that would have been crucial for their survival. Once you left the shore, the weather could really only be surveyed with the eye test, and that wasn't exactly the easiest thing to predict with. The U.S. Weather Bureau sent a forecast out at 8 in the morning, and then the next one they sent out was 8 at night. I mean, 12 hours! I mean, we know weather can change in an hour, and so it was almost as if captains were, were just totally blindsided by this. And communications... I mean, telegraphs, the storm brought down telegraph wires and telegraph poles. You couldn't even, if you knew what the weather was going to be, you couldn't even communicate it to anybody because they couldn't get it, you say. So it was pretty archaic and, and really was, but the, 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 the forecast was wrong. It was just, they forecasted, um, I remember seeing the, the most se- severe weather words that I saw was uh, like uh, a brisk winds, brisk winds. I mean, these winds were like hurricane force winds blowing at about 147 kilometers per hour. The wave heights were 11 meters. People need to realize we're talking up to 40 foot waves. I mean, they were huge. We had a banner made when we celebrated the 100th anniversary. We didn't celebrate, we remembered the 100th anniversary of the great storm. And we had a, a banner made that was 40 feet tall and we put it on the side of the museum so that people could look up and see that's 40 feet up. I mean, that is huge. To put the height of those waves into context, the length of a regulation-sized school bus is about 40 feet. To go alongside with these massive waves, there was a snowstorm that developed. It was a complete whiteout. While we'll never know what the blizzard looked like in the open water, the severity of it certainly was felt on shore. People here in Godridge, when they woke up, there wasn't snow to speak of. It was early November. But by the time they got out of church, they noticed they had about a foot of snow. And as the afternoon progressed, it became a full-blown blizzard and was equally as bad on land as it was on the lakes. We tend to think that this only occurred on the lakes, but in fact, everyone's bogged down, telephone lines down, everything all across uh, this part of Ontario. The weather became too much to handle. I mean, this is not like being on the 401 and being caught in the side of the road. I mean, this is in an open water. Uh, you're, you're, there's no ice. There's no shelter. They're seeking shelter from any bay or inlet that they could find. They're, they're seeing other ships are, are, are crashing. And, and uh, it would just be a nightmare. And, and I think in some cases they would, they would how do you handle your, your, your crew? I mean, you, you, I remember in one situation, I think it was the ship called the Regina. And, um, and the captain just said all of the, just get on lifeboats and go. None of them were safe. They all perished. And he was alone on the ship and, and went down with the ship. And, and, but he couldn't see. You didn't know you, the, the feeling, the wind and the, the wind chill, the, the effects of the blinding snow and precipitation and, and icing and the icing that would occur on the superstructure on the ice, just from that cool temperatures and that wind blowing spray and not just precipitation, but wind blowing spray. I mean, it would be just a nightmare uh, uh, beyond any description. One boat, which is the Wexford, uh, was trying to make it into the Godridge Harbour. And it tried for most of the afternoon and early evening. And people in town would describe the fact that they could hear uh, a ship's whistle blowing. They could hear the bell ringing. They knew that there was a vessel out there trying to make it in and there was, it was too dangerous to launch uh, any lifeboat or anything from the from the land 
And then as the day went on, it got quiet and they realized that something had happened. And so in the Wexford's case, it literally, it, they figure it broke its uh, rudder and eventually sunk. Um, we now know off of St. Joseph's. A total of 12 boats were lost in the storm with an estimate of more than 250 deaths in the tragedy. The death and destruction of the storm was sudden and the results took weeks to finally comprehend. Floatsam was starting to wash up on the shores. And it wasn't just washing up in one place. It was washing up all along the shores from Kincardine Way all the way down to, you know, Windsor even or Sarnia for sure. And it was washing up on both sides, but predominantly on the Canadian side because of the way the storm had come in from the West. So um, I've read accounts of uh, local farmers who were had shore line farms who would suddenly look out and find something floating. It was unusual. They go down and, you know, and it might be an oar from a boat. It might be a life jacket. And horrifically, it wasn't just oars and life jackets. They recovered bodies in Lake Huron, on the shores of Lake in Port Elgin and in, in Ontario, like a week or 10 days later, bodies just floated up from and, and some, when they went aboard some of these ships that were, uh, that were total destruction almost, they found sailors tied to the masts of the, of the, of the, of the ships. So just frozen to death because of the exposure that they had to, to the nasty temperatures and precipitation. My own grandfather, when he was 13, his father took him with them down to the shore to walk along Kincardin to find frozen sailors. And he told me later, what a horrible thing to take a 13, 14 year old boy to see. And that it stuck in his mind. He still, he described, you know, frozen hair and mustaches and beards and things. So you had this, then you also had situations where people had been to, well, what they would do is they'd often bring a wagon up to the towns and they would start looking because people would be posted uh, out front of a store and there'd be, the, the coffins would be in front of the store so that people could go along and see if they could identify their loved one. And they would go from one town to the next and so on. If they still weren't finding them, there are reports of them just literally walking the shore for miles looking for anything and not always finding. Sometimes they would go home with an empty wagon and sometimes they would locate their, uh, their loved one. It was a difficult process of identifying the deceased and in some cases there was just downright confusion. A sailor from Hamilton who uh, read in the newspaper that his body had been had come ashore in that nasty storm back in November the uh, November the 9th in, in the tw uh, 1913. So he hurried home and he found at his home in Hamilton a coffin uh, in his father's house and, uh, and preparations were for his for his funeral was going to take place that later that day. Well, his father had claimed a body with the same tattoo marks and the same scar that he remembered on his son. And so he made the claim, And but the son had left the ship, the, the ship that, that was destroyed, capsized, at the la just at the, before the storm hit. And so it was sort of one of these oddities that occurred, but it, and certainly it was happy for the for the family but it was one that sort of kind of is along with the anecdotes of the storm itself there were other moments that were were kind of uh you know uh 
not hilarious, but certainly kind of shocking or a bit of trivia that, um, that I'm sure there were many other events like, uh, like that. But uh, hey, some, some memory from a, a tragedy. When all the damage had been taken into consideration, the grief had turned to anger as to why this tragedy had happened. The blame was spread around to multiple places. The captain and the businesses who owned the ships, of course, but none more so than the Weather Bureau. That perhaps was unfair. When you look back in history, you know, weather, weather forecasting, they didn't have radar back then. They didn't have supercomputers. They had some observations and they had a few maps, but even the understanding of the science of meteorology was, was rather primitive. And, um, and, and really just weather moved from west to east and they had cold fronts and warm fronts and, and that's what it was. I mean, you felt lucky if you got the forecast right more times than wrong. But um, so it was always a, a dicey situation. When things of this magnitude happen, questions do need to be asked. What can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? What, if anything, could have made the difference of the ships that sunk in that lake? The Weather Bureau took everything under consideration and did use the tragedy as a chance to learn and evaluate their process. As terrible as the wreckage was, there were things to learn from it. I mean, they certainly saw more observations. I mean, observations are the key to forecasting. I mean, you can't make a forecast unless you can see the observations. And, uh, and that improved. The communications improved too. The telegraph, the, the, and, and people spread the urgency of this. This is important, not just because it's nice to know what the weather's going to be. This saved lives. And, and, uh, and, 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 and this was sort of the driving force behind putting more money. Governments put more resources in. They train more people. And, uh, and so certainly that was, I mean, I think meteorologists are always great at going back and, 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 testing their models and saying, well, okay, what did we do wrong? What, if we'd known this, what could have been better? And, um, and they never rest on their laurels. And so I think this is to go back and they look at those maps and the observations and they would, in science, and they would say, well, how could we improve this? But this was unique in the sense that so many ways, so many superlatives about the storm, the, the ferociousness of the storm, the, uh, the timing, um, the, uh, the fact that you had uh, the, 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 the slowing it down, the, sl- the storm just took its sweet time, had more time to spread its misery over that three days. Some people called it a weather bomb, and in a way it was kind of a weather bomb. A bomb is a meteorological term for a drop in pressure of 24 millibars in 24 hours. And it's very intensive. It's like a bomb. It just explodes. And so this, and a lot of the we don't see bombs in the on the land area. They tend to be more along the Pacific coast, a few, but mostly along the Atlantic coast. Uh, storms that come up, warm cores, and then they collide with that Canadian cold air, and then a hell breaks loose. A weather bomb explodes. Well, this one was truly a bomb. Ultimately, the storm changed the way weather was monitored and communicated for the better. As for those who didn't have the luxury of an updated weather system, they have not gone forgotten. Knox Presbyterian Church here in town, uh, the minister um, at the time used to go down to the harbor and he'd bring the sailors up for church service in the spring in which they would bless the fleet, pray for the sailors and so on. And they, they, they described the pews being full of all these sailors. And then, of course, the great storm of 13 happened and the same minister Uh, was then having to do these funerals for these young fellows. 
And there are five unknown sailors that washed ashore at Godry's, never claimed. Nobody ever claimed their body. They don't know who they are. They are off the Carruthers. And uh, so there was a funeral service for the unknown sailors a few days after the great storm. There's a headstone for them in the cemetery here at the Maitland Cemetery in Godridge. And to this day, Knox Church has an annual Mariner's Service that has two purposes. One is to, again, uh, pray for and bless the fleet for safety. And the second part is a remembrance in which I read the names of the vessels that were lost in the great storm and the names of some of the sailors lost. And we ring a bell for each one of those boats that went down, each of those eight boats that went down. So to this day, we are still remembering the great storm in a, in a meaningful way. And people from all through the community do not want to miss that service. Further to the remembrance of the victims in the great storm of 1913, a play with variations of the production having been played since 1975 has been written. This is playwright Warren L. Robinson. In 2013, the uh, committee for that was celebrating the centennial of the great storm uh, asked me to put the play on again, and I, I said no about three times until finally Paul Carroll, who is the chairman of the committee, said, Warren, you won't be alive for the 200th centennial, so why don't you just do the damn play? So I did, and we took it to, uh, had a cast of, I think, 42 or 3, and we took it to Sarnia for two performances there and nine performances in Godrich at the Liberty Theatre, and they were all sold out for performances, standing ovation went extremely well. Play is what I call faction. That is, I take actual facts, and for example, I have a lot of quotations from the inquest, and uh, but most of the characters, other than those who are named in the inquest, are products of my own imagination. So I have a wealthy ship-owning Scottish family and a, a kind of dirt-poor Irish family lived in the flats, which is where the beach is in Godrich now, and see what happens to the, the two families during the course of this. And the play deals with things like survivor's guilt, the one who, who managed to, who, to survive and his brother didn't. Those, those kinds of, kinds of, uh, things, sort of the PTSD of, of naval disasters. The, uh, the play tries to balance a lot of, a lot of humor along with the tragedy because that's something that Shakespeare taught me. The play is a great way to keep the memory of these sailors alive, and although the storm took place many years ago, it not only affected the way weather is forecasted, but also profoundly impacted families in Huron County. This podcast was written by Patrick Magerwins and Haley Chang. It was hosted by Craig Needles. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.